I'm Tom Hegenbotham. I serve on the elder board at Christ Community Chapel, and I'm reading from Romans 2.6. He will render to each one according to his works. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekend services here at Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you're here with us, whether you're here in the West service with me, watching over in the East service, or you're online. Thanks for being with us. I'm really excited to continue our sermon series, looking at the book of Romans, 10 sentences to change your life, looking at 10 powerful sentences in the book, getting the the spirit of the book in these sentences and watching what God does to change our lives. But before I do that, let me ask you a question. How many of you are participating with us in the 97-day prayer journey? Would you throw your hand up? Awesome, awesome. Over 1,200 people are participating. You know, I have really loved doing the prayer journey. It's amazing to me. You know, we have so many talented people on staff. Some of those talents you see because they're on stage. You know, we have worship leaders and speakers and and things like that. We also have a lot of talented people who work on our staff that you don't see because the work they do is during the week. And so I want you to know that Pastor Mike Howarda wrote that prayer uh, journal. Uh, Would you mind just taking a minute to celebrate him with me for his work on that? Yeah, I'm always, I'm amazed at Mike's ability to take uh, so much truth and to put it into a single sentence. I mean, he has these sentences that are just so full of truth. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Zach, how come he can do that in a sentence and it takes you half an hour? And that is a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. For job security reasons, let's not think too hard about it, okay? But I am really, really appreciative of Mike, and I hope you've been joining us in the prayer journal. Hey, if you have your Bible, would you go ahead and pull it out and open it to Romans chapter 2, verse 6? I hope you brought a Bible with you. If you have your phone, feel free to take that out. Scroll to Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 6. If you're watching online, open that web browser. Just Google Romans 2, 6. It'll pop up so you have it in front of you. And as you're turning or scrolling or whatever it is, you're doing to find the passage. Let me hold out to you the outline I'm gonna be using to navigate our time together. And I wanna remind you that one unique thing about this sermon series is that not only do we have the typical sermon outline, but at the end, uh, there's a challenge or an opportunity for you to immediately this week apply what we learn in obedience uh, this week. And that's what this is for. We'll get to that in a minute. But our outline for today is very simple, three points, and it goes like this. I want to talk about who we really are, what that really means, and what we really need. Okay, who we really are, what that really means, and what we really need. Uh, Let's start with the first one, who we really are. Uh, This is a very simple verse and a little bit self-explanatory. Romans 2.6 says, he, and The he here in the context, if you zoomed out and read the surrounding verses, would be God. So God will render to each one according to his works. There's a lot of truth packed into that sentence, and and maybe chiefly is the idea that God sees us, that God is paying attention, that God sees our works. He sees the things we do. He sees the things we don't do. He's paying attention to them, and they matter to him. In fact, if I understand this verse correctly, I think what it's saying is that when God thinks about us, 
when God, when his attention is on us, were God to evaluate us, he would evaluate us or think of us or see us as the sum total of what we do. That to God, we are not who we say we are or who we think we are, but to God, we are what we do or we are what we don't do. Now, this is really important because I think for many of us, I know this is true for me, so I'm just gonna, if you allow me, superimpose this on you. I think for many of us, the idea of who we are doesn't always correspond to the reality of who we are. So I think of myself as a particular kind of man, a, a particular kind of pastor or husband or father or friend, worker, but that doesn't always match up with who I actually am, my image of myself and the reality of what I do. And so sometimes what happens is because I have this self-perception, I assume that when other people think about me, they don't think about me in terms of what I actually do. They think about me in the same way I think about myself. And then it's easy to think, well, if that's what I think other people are doing, then maybe that's what God is doing that God shares my opinion of me rather than looking at the actual data or facts of my life. But Paul says here, no, that's not true. God sees us, he knows us, he's paying attention to us, and we are to him not who we say we are, but what we actually do and do not do. Let me give you an analogy that'll drive this home. I, I love my wife, Amy. She's here at the 10 o'clock service. Uh, we've been together for 20 years, married for 16 of those years. It's been great. Wonderful marriage, wonderful wife. But one of the little idiosyncrasies of our marriage is that we are both very competitive. Okay, very, very competitive. And so what often happens in our house is one of us will say something and the other person will challenge that something. I don't know if that's true. And then what comes out of that is a wager, if you will. Now, we're not betting money because, you know, we share the money. That's self-defeating. We're usually betting things like who's going to do the dishes or who gets up with the kids on a Saturday morning and stuff like that, the really important stuff, okay? And, and so one time, this is an example of that, one time I was sitting in the kitchen and I was telling her about something I had read in the New York Times that MIT, I'm sure you've heard of, of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, prestigious school, they had just done a study wherein they had proven scientifically that Skittles do not taste differently based on color, okay? Now I, I can see the cynicism in your face, okay? But this is MIT, okay? MIT is saying that all Skittles taste the same, but the color coding makes you think you're tasting something different. And I, I wasn't, I mean, I didn't do that study, okay? I was just sharing that. And Amy said, that's ridiculous. I can absolutely tell the difference between the flavors of Skittles. And you know, I love my wife, but I'm gonna side with MIT here. So I said, would you care to, to wager on that? I would love to do that. She said, absolutely. And it just so happened at this time, we were young church planners in Cleveland. We had a mission team in visiting. So I did what any loving husband would do. I went and got them all and gathered them in the dining room with a bag of Skittles. And we blindfolded Amy. And, and, I, and I, you know, when we wager, I forget what Amy wanted if she won. But all I wanted if I won was for her to admit she couldn't do it. That's it. That's it, that's what I wanted. I wanted her to say, I cannot, my name is Amy, and I cannot tell the difference between the colors of Skittles. 
Okay, so, so we blindfold her and I'm just taking a Skittle out of the bag and, I'm, and this is pre-pandemic and I'm putting it in her mouth and she's going like she's tasting wine or something and she's saying the color of a Skittle. Now she got the first couple right but then I put a red one in her mouth and she couldn't get red so then I gave the next seven were all red which shouldn't have been a problem if she could actually tell the color from taste and she failed and so after the bet, I said, okay, Amy, what would you like to share with the group? And she said, I can absolutely tell the difference between colors of Skittles. <laughs> now, just last year, I told this story to my circle, to my small group here at CCC. And, and, and I, I forget why I was telling it. And Amy said to my circle, I can tell the difference. He's wrong. So I went to the pantry and I got a bag of Skittles. And I said, let's do it right now. And so again, she was blindfolded and we did the taste test and she failed again. And I said to her, is there something you would like to share with the group? And she said, yes, that I can absolutely tell the difference between. So I, I know what you're thinking is, it, Zach, you think this is proving something about your wife. Actually, it's proving that you think you're a good husband and you're actually not. Touche, okay? But... This is what I would say. Amy is not that different than the rest of us. What she thinks about herself doesn't necessarily correspond to reality. Listen, here's what I want you to understand. I know you like to think of yourself as a particular kind of person. So do I. I know you fancy yourself as a particular kind of person. So do I. I know you're tempted to think that God, when he views you or thinks about you, will defer to your own opinion. But Romans 2.6 says he will not. You are to God the sum total of what you've actually done, of what you haven't done. He's paying attention. He sees. He knows. He evaluates. And it doesn't matter what image of God you have in your head. It doesn't matter what image of you you have in your head. It doesn't matter how you think he should evaluate or what you think he should do. Here is the promise from God in the Bible. He will render to you according to your works. You are who you really are in God's eyes. There's no escaping that. There's no changing that. There's no getting around it. There's no maneuvering around it. You are who you really are in God's eyes. That actually leads me to my second point, which I have to say is even worse news. And that is that here's what that really means. Look at what the verse says. Not God is aware of everyone's works. God is forming an opinion of the things you do. God is conscious of your actions. That's not what it says. Look at what it says. He will render to each one according to his works. In other words, God will judge us and give to us what we sees who we are. He knows who we are. He's not interested in opinions or flowery language or, 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 or platitudes. He sees what we do. He sees what we don't do. And he will judge us righteously based on that. Now, I know culturally that's not very popular to say. We, we have in mind a particular kind of God 
who's kind of like a grandfather and he just smiles at you and hands you a Werther's original and tells you he thinks you're awesome. Grandfathers are great, but God is not a grandfather. God is a righteous judge. He sees you. He sees me. He knows you. He knows me. He's evaluating you. He's evaluating me. And this is not a statement you can get around. He will render to you according to your works. Now, what's interesting in this passage is that Paul knows we're going to struggle with that. And so he points us to two evidences of this that kind of pin us down in this matter. Two different things. The first one is how we think about other people. Now, in Romans chapter 1, Paul goes through kind of the state of the world. He, he, he talks about wickedness and ungodliness, and, and it expresses itself in this way and this way. And, and the end of Romans 1 is like the junk drawer of evil. I mean, he just kind of riffs for a minute, and he's like, they do this, and they do that, and they do this, and they do that. And you can read it, and he uses them and they language. It, it's as though he's standing in the bubble of the church of Rome and pointing outside the bubble and saying, look at what those people do. Look at what they do. Look at them. It's as though Paul is doing what we assume all religious people do, which is sit in their bubble and judge us. But that's not what he's doing. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is why it's so great if you bring your Bible. Look at what it says. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Here's what Paul's saying. We hate evil and sin and unrighteousness in other people, but the same things we see in them are true of us. I'll give you an example of this. I was preaching once at a church and a cell phone went off. Well, that's not unusual. That happens. By the way, that, if you forget, if you didn't realize your phone was on, that's okay, right? I'll give you at least 20 seconds to turn it off before I shame you. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. You know, it happens. So the cell phone's going off and I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not being, I'm not even noticing. I'm just preaching and preaching and preaching, but it keeps going off. And then it stops going off and I'm like, oh, phew, good. And it starts going off again. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to really almost reach the point where I was just going to stop the sermon and go, please, I can, I've heard from the Lord. He wants you to silence your cell phone. And I'm, you know, and so I'm preaching and I'm, I'm focused, but I'm also kind of scanning the room and talk to you later until I see a friend of mine reach over under my chair and grab my phone and turn it off. And you know, in that moment, do you know what I was thinking? If I'm honest, you know what I was thinking? Now who is calling me on a Sunday? <laughs> they know what I do for a living, right? What a great metaphor for how we think about other people. Other people and it's repulsive to us. And we even see through other people, well, he thinks he's this, but of course, well, she just thinks she's that. But of course, we see that in other people and we can't stand it, but we replicate it. Jesus makes this point in the Sermon on the Mount. Tim Keller captures this so well in his sermon where he says that it's a tree, it's a relationship between a tree and an acorn. Jesus will say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's a tree, a fully formed sin. 
But then he'll say, but I tell you, if you even look at another person and turn them into an object of your sexual fantasy, you have already committed adultery. What's he saying? He's saying that's the acorn that leads to the tree. And all you need for an acorn is some sunlight and water. You get an oak tree. It's the same. When I was a young pastor, I had a man asked to meet me at a Buffalo Wild Wings where all major theological discussions happen. And he said, hey, I need to share something with you about my life. And so, okay, so we get down, we sit down, we're, we're looking across the table, and he says, I need to share something. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this guy must have missed his quiet time a couple times last week, or I don't know, you know, what's going on. And he says, I, I need you to know, if you're going to be my pastor, that I cheat on my wife pretty regularly about once a week with a different woman. And I didn't know what to say because no one's ever that honest with me. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'm an awful person. You're thinking I'm not welcome at your church. And he said this, and I'll never forget this. He said, I bet you have a bunch of guys at your church looking at pornography. And I said, well, statistically, that's probably true. And he goes, let me tell you something. Pornography is just adultery for cowards. Now, let me tell you something. That guy is awful, okay? I don't want to justify what he's saying about his own life, but I do want you to see that he's making the same connection Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. That we're so busy looking at the trees of other people that we miss the acorn. You judge other people, but what's out there is in here. Can I let you in on something? There is no cultural problem that exists outside the church that does not exist within the church. God sees and God knows. And just the fact that we put on nice clothes and come and sit here for an hour doesn't mean he isn't aware. It doesn't mean he doesn't see. It doesn't perception. He understands who we really are. And Paul says, the righteous indignation you feel towards other people condemns you and it condemns me because why wouldn't we assume that just as we are angrily shaking our fist at the sin of others, that there are people behind us angrily shaking their fist at our own sin? But the second evidence he points to, you can find in verse 14 and 15, is your conscience. Look at what he says. Romans 2, verse, verse 15. Listen to what he says. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. In other words, what he's saying is that how many times have you and I had this experience where every fiber of our being is saying, don't do that, and we do it anyway? How many times have we felt as though with all that we are, we should do this and we don't do it. And Paul says, listen, you have violated your own conscience. Even if, and I heard one theologian put it this way this week. He said, even if God only judged you with the times in your life that you have said to someone else, you should blah, 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 blah. It would be enough to condemn you. Because it's always true that our inner sense of righteousness exceeds our outward performance of righteousness. Our own consciences convict us. Listen to what I'm telling you. God sees. God knows. God is aware. Putting on nice clothes, sitting in a pew, volunteering in children's ministry, giving money, coming on the weekends even when I preach. That is not enough to convince God 
to, to change his mind, to change his perspective, to cover up your sin. Every person in this room, every person watching online, even this guy on stage in a sport coat with a microphone, every one of us is gonna stand before God. He sees and he knows. Our consciences tell us this. Our righteous indignation towards others tell us this. But Romans 2, 6 tells us this. He will render to each one according to their works. I had in particular a group of people in mind this week as I prepared the sermon, which is some of you who grew up in the church. You, you come every week. You would call yourself a Christian. What you really mean is you perpetuate the religion of Christianity. You come, you sit, you stand, you sing, you pray, you give, you go home. And your hope is that somehow, if you dedicate enough Sundays towards that, it'll all average out in the end. It won't. It won't. It won't. Maybe you're here and you say, I don't even believe in God. Okay. You're still going to stand before him one day. He still sees and he still knows and he'll still judge you. Listen, I know this is bad news. I get it. I feel the heaviness in the room. And I don't say this with any pleasure. And I got to tell you something, spoiler alert, in like 30 seconds, I have really good news for you. But it's like when you go to the jewelry store and they have these diamonds they want to sell you and they set it against black felt because the black felt makes the diamond pop. And so the black felt, which is not great, you don't want to buy it, but it helps you to see the beauty of the diamond. Listen, you'll never understand what the Bible wants to tell you. You'll never know what God wants you to know unless you see the black felt of your own life and your own heart and your own mind over and against the beauty of what God has for you. The bad news helps you appreciate the good news, helps you to grab hold of it, and here's the bad news. He sees, he knows, he watches, he keeps score, he evaluates, and one day, though it may seem to you forever away, he will render to you and I, not according to what our moms say about us, not according to what our neighbors say, our coworkers say, the culture say, or what we say, he will render to us according to our works. And none of us, none of us will stand before him and get good news. But there is good news. And that leads me to my third point, which is to say, what then do we really need? What will we do if I have to stand before God and give an account, if I have to stand before God and he has a record of everything that I've done and, and, and everything that I haven't done, even if I were to say in this moment, okay, I'll change. I'll, uh, from this moment on, I will do everything God wants and I will not do any of the things God doesn't want. I'm 38 years old. I've got 38 years of, of, of getting it wrong. What happens to that? How do I know if I've canceled it out? How could I ever be sure? Well, the Bible knows, God knows, that the only way you could ever be sure is if you could speak to someone who can stand before the judgment of God, who can get good news, and can share with you his secret. And that someone, friends, is Jesus. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the same writer, the same writer who writes, he will render to each one according to his works. The same writer who lays the black felt of our sin and impending judgment in front of us puts the diamond on the felt in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 when he says this. Listen to what he says. For our sake... He, he is God here, for our sake, he made him, him is Jesus. So I'm just gonna sub that in, okay? For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Now listen, zero in here because if you get this, it'll change not only your life, it'll change your destiny. The Bible tells us that only one man who's ever lived has lived the kind of life where if God said to him, I will judge you according to his works, he could look at God and say, that sounds great to me. And that man was Jesus. Jesus, while on this planet, never did anything wrong. He always did the right thing. He never did the wrong thing. He never failed to, to do the right thing. He, he was a man that spoke truth. He was never greedy. He was never arrogant. He was never lustful. He was never prideful. He, he never marginalized. He never minimized. He, he, he never did any of those things. He was the one man who could say to God, you're gonna judge me according to my works? I wouldn't want you to judge me any other way. He's the one guy who could walk up to God and say, if you simply evaluate me based on my moral performance, you must reward me. Jesus is the man who knew no sin. And yet the Bible tells us he came not to rub it in our face, but he came to die on a cross. And that what's happening on the cross is what theologians will call the great exchange, wherein God is taking all the sins of the church and placing them onto Jesus. As Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, he is making him who knew no sin to become sin. He is taking all the sin of the church, all, all the sin of Zach, and he's setting it on to Jesus so that he might pour out his anger and his judgment and his wrath so that he might render to Jesus according to my works. So that when Jesus dies, God's anger and judgment and wrath over my sin has been exhausted. And then three days later, when Jesus raises from the dead, here's what God says. If you will believe him and love him and follow him, then not only will I take your sin and put it on him, but I will take his sinless, righteous life and I will credit it to you so that when I look at you, Zach, I don't see your sin or your flaw or your history or your past or your mistakes. When I look at you, I see Jesus. Therefore, Romans 2.6 becomes good news for me. He will render to me according to my works. That's a terrifying sentence. Unless my works in God's infinite grace have become the works of Jesus on my behalf. Hear me on this. No one is born a Christian. 
I don't care about your family background. I don't care how long you've been coming here. I'm telling you, if you don't reach out in faith for Jesus, if you don't ask Jesus to stand in your place on the cross, if you don't ask God to exchange your sin for his righteousness, grab a hold of him in faith and say, I believe you lived in my place and you died in my place and you rose from the dead, then Romans 2.6 is the promise of judgment for you. But if you do, if you do, then Romans 2.6 is the best news you'd ever would hear because it tells you that the test that is coming, you've already passed in Christ. So my prayer for you is that you would shake out of cultural Christianity, which means nothing, and you would actually grab hold of Jesus. But brothers and sisters in Christ, I know you're saying, I already know all this. And that's true, I guess, but you never outgrow it, do you? I mean, do you understand that the infinite of God's grace on your behalf is that this verse should terrify you, but now because of Jesus, it excites you. Do you feel that? Well, I'll see when you sing here in a minute. <laughs> but let me challenge you with something. Because what this verse is telling me is that God cares about how I live my life. And if we really see our sin as black felt and the righteousness of Christ as a diamond, how could we ever choose the felt over the diamond? Yes, you are covered in grace, but brother or sister in Christ, do you see that the same Jesus who saves you desires to teach you, to lead you, to shape you, to be like him? That you and I might become what Ephesians 2.10 says, his workmanship created in, in Christ for good works, that we might become people who are rendering to him works to which he is worthy. And so here's your challenge. Yes, you're covered in the blood of Christ. Yes, his righteousness is imputed to you. But here is the challenge. Live his righteousness. You notice I have this mirror. I got this from my bathroom. My wife uses this. It's kind of magic. I don't know how it works. You look on one side and it's zoomed in, and that is not a pretty sight, by the way. Every imperfection, every flaw. Somehow my wife looks in and she's beautiful. I look in it and I think, look away. But then if I flip it, I get a zoomed out look, and it's like, yeah, this is what I thought I looked like, right? Listen, this is what I'm telling you. When you zoom in on yourself, I know you see your flaws, I know you see your imperfections, I know you see your weaknesses and your shortcomings, but here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. When God zooms in on you, that's not at all what he sees. He sees Christ. But were we to flip it and to step back, what we'd also see is Jesus behind us, shaping and molding and fashioning. Brother or sister in Christ, what area of sin is God putting his finger on today? Don't return back to the felt that you knew. Reach for that diamond. Let him shape and mold. Yield to him. This is your challenge. Identify one area of life this week that God is desiring to lead you in obedience to be. Not because you have to. Not because hell is waiting for you if you don't. But because he loves you, and he knows what's best for you, and you trust him.
that we might become the kind of people that God might say, yes, I covered you in grace, but I'm proud of who you're becoming in that grace. Let me pray for us. Father God, what a good God you are that you take sentences that are terrifying and make them amazing through Christ. That you would render to each one of us according to his work. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict everyone in this room not yet in a relationship with Jesus that even now they might be reaching out for Jesus saying, I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe he lived in my place and he died in my place and he rose from the dead. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be convicting those of us who already have a relationship with Jesus, that you'd be showing us that one area you want to drive us to obedience in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.